Welcome to another episode of The Bounce Podcast. I'm Bob Lapine. I'm the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm also on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. GCC is the organization that brings you The Bounce. We are committed to planting churches and strengthening leaders. And you can find out more about the Great Commission Collective on our website, gccollective.org. As part of that commitment to strengthening leaders and planting churches, we provide this podcast where we can talk pastor to pastor about issues we face in pastoral ministry. And today we have the opportunity to visit with the lead pastor at Parkside Church, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, where Alistair Big has been the pastor for several decades. He's been there since 1983. Many of you listen to Alistair on Truth For Life, either the podcast or on your local Christian radio station. He's an author and a well-known speaker. He's been married to Susan since 1975. He has three adult children. He's a grandfather to eight children. And of course, he is best known for his distinctive Scottish accent, which I have told him is not fair that he has that uh, because I think it just gives him a leg up on the rest of us. Uh, He is also well known for uh, quoting songs from the 60s and 70s in his sermons. I texted him one day and said, yesterday in my sermon, I quoted Chris Christofferson and I forget who else. I said, what about you? And he texted me back and he said, yeah, I only quoted Jesus yesterday. So (laughs) I said, okay, you win. Here is a recent conversation with Alistair about his new book, The Christian Manifesto, all about Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. I want to start by asking you about the title of the book, because I don't think of you as a provocateur, and yet here we are in the middle of conversations about things like Christian nationalism, and Alistair Begg writes a book called The Christian Manifesto. You want to explain yourself here? I think that the title we thought about for those very reasons decided that the risk was worth the uh, the potential benefit, just in the sense that, you know, people are used to saying, setting out their declarations, uh, their statements regarding their company policy or their school agenda or whatever it might be. So what we're really saying in this is that if you listen to the king uh, talk about his kingdom, uh, what are the principles and values that are there? And so Jesus, in a couple of places, we might say the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, actually sets out these principles. So that's what it's about. But it's not, I think, uh, you know, the provocative aspect of it is hopefully will make people say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean a manifesto? And then Mm -hmm. they'll read it rather than, oh dear, I don't want to hear a manifesto. And then they'll neglect it. (laughs) Time will tell. You mentioned both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. There's overlap between what we see in Matthew's gospel and what's in Luke's gospel. This is really the heart of what Jesus is telling his disciples that life is supposed to be all about, right? Yes, I think it's pretty clear that there are two separate occasions for sure, uh, but that the overlap between the material is exactly what we would expect when two of Jesus' followers were giving to their readers in their gospel the sort of highlights of the overarching teaching of the king. 
And uh, a bit like in newspaper articles, somebody highlights one piece, but when you read both of them, you realize that they are fitting in with one another. And as we think about this, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to the first sermon I ever preached when I was in my 20s, which was on the Beatitudes. And I, I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed to go back and listen to it because I was reading commentaries that were telling me that this was about the, the future, about the millennial kingdom, that th these principles would be lived in the future and maybe it wasn't for today. I don't think that's the case. I think we're supposed to read the Sermon on the Plain and apply it in our day, don't you think? Oh, I think for sure we can all be grateful for the fight that Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually, you know, gave to us uh, the Beatitudes and helped us uh, navigate our way through that. He did that a long time ago. And of course, uh, the work that uh, John Stott did in um, the countercultural essence of Christian living, I found very helpful as a young man. And um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's vitally important. I think the other side, of course, is that the real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism. Mm. Uh, pull up your socks and try and be a decent person. If you'll do this, then maybe Jesus will let you into his kingdom. As opposed to what is actually being conveyed by Jesus, here are the evidences, here are the marks of kingdom living. Here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who I am and what I've done, that the, that the outflow is from there. So that's and, working from in to out. And, and I think it's easy for any of us to to read Luke chapter six and go, oh, wait a second, I can't do this. Love my enemies and and think different. This this is unnatural and feels impossible. And I think that's part of the point, isn't it? That Jesus is trying to say, you can't do this. Well, yes, I, I think, well, I think, you know, it's interesting <laughs> that you phrase it in that way, because part of the problem is that uh, the sort of moral framework of Christianity with a big C is such that people do read this and say, oh, yes, I definitely can do this. <laughs> and uh, they might not make a very good job of it, but they're trying their best uh, to be these people. And and I think that when we read the, the material carefully, we realize exactly what you're saying, that Jesus is pointing out to us that this is an impossibility apart from the the work of grace within our lives. We also need to keep in mind, and, and you point this out beautifully in the book, that this is not what we do to enter into the kingdom. This is what we do because we are citizens of the kingdom. And so to read it, I must be honest, Bob, I, you know, I scan read this book in preparation for this conversation. I was immediately thinking of the passage where Paul says, I do not I don't I don't box in the air, you know, I don't I don't shadow box, but I I beat my I beat my body. And to read this book, give yourself a pretty good punch on the nose. Immediately we want to jump to the conclusion that oh yes, it's very clear that these are the evidences of uh, of real kingdom living. And yet we're confronted by the fact that you know, if we look on the last week we haven't just been exemplary people in relationship to these things. And so the wonderful thing about it is that it casts us back again and again on the Lord, but not to use that as an excuse for the potential disobedience of our own hearts. I find great comfort that Paul said, there are things I hate I end up doing. 
and and there are ways I fall short. And so as I read the Sermon on the Plain, as I read your book, I think, well, it does pull me up short over and over again. But that's where I come back and re-believe the gospel and, and find my hope there. Absolutely. I think the thing that underpins this, and it's it's a short book, I think, with a big punch, uh, more of a punch than I actually realized. At this point in in history, at this point in our history in America, with an increasingly divided country on all kinds of fronts, if the people of God, if we the people of God are prepared to actually take these things seriously, endeavor at great cost to ourselves and perhaps to our reputation and perhaps to our own agendas and strategies and everything else, be prepared to let the world in to see the embryonic nature of this kingdom. That it, it, the part of the problem is, and I say this in the book, I say, you know, this idea of, of a forgiving spirit or uh, loving your enemy or whatever it might be, does the average person in our communities say, well, if I want to know about that, I should go to such and such a church? Or do university or college students say, oh, yeah, those are the people, those are the, the kingdom people, those are the Jesus people, that they understand that? And to our shame, I don't think that would necessarily be the immediate response. And so the opportunity that is before us now is for a phenomenal adventure to actually take this material. I mean, I just imagine to myself reading this out loud um, in, in our congregation. I mean, I preached it many, many years ago, but um, I think it's even more daunting than, than it was back in the in the early, in the late 90s. I think about principles in the Sermon on the Plain, like the teaching of Jesus that we are to love our enemy. And I think of today, modern social media. I wonder how many Christians are taking a command to love your enemy. And as they write out their, their latest tweet or post their latest post on Facebook, are thinking, well, I need to be loving my enemy. It, it seems we've lost sight of some of these commands of Jesus. Yeah, and they're so fundamental. That's the striking thing. I mean, this is not like a postgraduate course. This is Christianity 101. I mean, this is this is foundational. The, the nature of forgiveness, the, the amazing reality of mercy. You know, the trouble is that we read these parables. I read these parables and, you know, I want to be the younger brother that comes back, you know, on my knees. And I look at it and I say, I... I Horribly think I might be the elder brother here. Um, I, I, I want to be the guy who beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I see myself more forcibly in these guys who said, well, I don't do this and I don't do that and I do this and I do that. And therefore, I've been able to scale myself. Mm -hmm. That's the challenge of it. That's the challenge that Jesus was laying down, of course. Forgiveness is one of the key themes in the Sermon on the Plain. And I, you and I both, as we talk to people in pastoral ministry, find a lot of people struggling with this issue of forgiveness, in, in part, I think, because they don't rightly understand what it means to forgive someone. Forgiveness, though, is, is a command. It's not an option for a Christian, is it? Right. The way in which it is framed, of course, is that our merciful response to people reaction to people is on account of the the groundswell reality of realizing how merciful God has been to us. Yeah. And, you know, when we 
say the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive, uh, forgiving our debtors, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. So hard to say that because you've got the trespasses or debtors or whatever. And anyway, <laughs> uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, it's only as I realize the immensity of God's forgiveness towards me that I realize that, that I don't really have an option here. Um, in terms of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that, to forgive a person doesn't mean that we condone what they've done or that we are just simply saying it doesn't matter. No, we don't condone it and it does matter. If it didn't matter, there's no, if it wasn't wrong, there would be no need for forgiveness. But to forgive in that way is a supernatural thing. In the same way that, that at the other end of the, the other side of the coin, to love in the way that Jesus calls us to love is also a super supernatural reality. As you're sitting with someone who is struggling with forgiveness, they've been profoundly hurt or scarred by someone, and they say, I just can't forgive this person. What's your pastoral counsel to them in that moment? Well, funnily enough, I was with somebody just last week. They came through our building. They were traveling casual conversation. We were just bantering things around. And then eventually the gentleman said to me, um, would it be okay if you and I just talked for a moment? And as we talked, he, he told me that he's been harboring all of his life a sense of anger towards one of his parents. Had reached the point, he said, where he has now been able to look on that parent with a sense of compassion. But he said, and then he burst into tears as a man in his 60s, he said, but I just can't say, I forgive you. Can you help me to do that? And so I said, well, I'll try. But that is the reality of it. And, and it, it's not immediately helpful, I think, to say to somebody, well, I, I'm not sure can't is right. I think perhaps won't is right. Uh, because it is by an act of the will. As sometimes our hearts need to catch up with our heads, um, need to catch up with our words. And uh, so I encouraged him, and we prayed together. And uh, he said, this has been a, a burden uh, shared and a burden halved. Let me ask you about Jesus' teaching about money and possessions, which is a part of what's in the Sermon on the Plain, which again seems countercultural to the consumerism and the materialism that is so prevalent in our own culture. Yeah, it is such a challenge. I mean, that's that's what I say when I read through this again, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, Bob, but I don't re-listen to my own sermons. <laughs> I mean, Spurgeon said, keep your old sermons to weep over. And I can understand that. But as I, as I read this material again, I, I was struck by, by the immensity of the challenge that the things that we lay store by um, are not the things that Jesus lays store by. And we have, if you like, been tempted, at least in Western civilization, to baptize into orthodoxy a sense of well-being, a sense of uh, position, and uh, a sense of being relatively settled. But as I, as I say in the book, you know, in terms of being rich, most of us would fit in the scheme of the entire world in the 1% of those in the entire world. Therefore, it's not as if the I can sidestep it and say, well, I know a few people who are rich, they need to hear this. No, I, I need to hear this as well, because the, the temptation is to find our security in something other than God himself. And Jesus is saying there's no lasting joy that is found in that. And of course, we know that. 
But then it's so easy to slip back into that and to be confronted by the challenge of, of, of the manifesto of the king. He says, no, you've got it upside down if you go there. My world turns it upside down. And that's the challenge. Is, is there anything that helps you rethink your relationship with money and possessions? As you read the words of Jesus, how do you get free from the bondage that can come from materialism? First of all, just being alerted to it is one thing and not trying to sidestep the warning bell saying, yeah, well, that's very good for someone, but it doesn't matter to me. First of all, being prepared to allow the thing to scan our own hearts. And then I think generosity with what we have is a tremendous help to recognizing that what we have was entrusted to us on loan, and it's not ours to keep in any case. And, you know, I say that as a Scot, you know, we're known along with the Dutch and a few others for a sense of frugality and for you know, holding everything to ourselves. It's a real journey for me to discover that generosity with a provision that God has made is a wonderfully satisfying reality. And also it when you do that, when you when you disburse what you have, then you have less left. And therefore you are left to trust God, I suppose, more. Mm. Because you're saying, I don't need this for my security. I need you as my security. Luke chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Plain does not feel to me like a passage you go to for comfort. It feels like a passage you go to for to be challenged in your faith. And I think a lot of us open our Bibles looking for comfort rather than, than exhortation or challenge. Is there comfort, do you think, found in reading through the Sermon on the Plain? I think you're right, Bob. I mean, I think the initial impact of it is either to skip over it quickly or to run and hide <laughs> or to say this must have meant something very significant in Jesus' day. But of course, you know, we're postmodern people and we view things differently, and which, of course, is then just to be those who read the word but don't pay any attention to it at all. This, the joy that is found in it is the joy of bowing down to the king, is uh, acknowledging that his way is actually perfect, that his plans are, are the perfect plans. And although they turn our lives upside down, it's not that we go out to say, I've got to find as many people as possible that can hate me because then this would, <laughs> then I would really be getting to grips with this. So that we, it, some, because some of us can make people dislike us, you know, with just the blink of an eye. <laughs> so it's important that, that, that we set the impact of individual statements that are often unearthed from the sermon within the context of the totality of what Jesus is saying, that, that this is not everything about the Christian life. This is not everything about what it means to bow beneath the king. And so we need to make sure that in taking this particular address, we set it within the wider framework of the entirety of Christ, the entirety of Christ's ministry. Well, I'm thinking again about the title, The Christian Manifesto. I'm thinking if somehow our world was shaped by this teaching, what a glorious reality that would be if we lived this way, if we all lived this way, that's what God intends for us. You and I both are children of the 60s one way or another. And, you know, Woodstock, whatever it was, and with all of his excesses and crazinesses aside, it was a genuine cry by that generation to discover 
what it meant to truly love. It was, as one journalist described it, the search for the nation's soul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it came up short. Uh, the challenge of dealing with um, wars amongst the nations has been addressed by establishing the, night, the United Nations. But anybody with half a brain realizes that whatever is going on there in Brussels or whatever it might be, it can't settle the, the, the deep-seated animosities of people and the cries of the human heart. And so that is why the idea of, you know, one day this thing will be there in glorious technicolor. That's the picture in Revelation, that there will be this gathering of the people. But in the meantime, somehow or another, local churches have got to figure out a way to open up their hearts and open up their doors to let people come in and understand that in our vulnerabilities and in our brokenness, we are subjects of a king. He is a merciful king. He tells the truth. He doesn't dodge the issues. And he died in order that we might learn to die to ourselves as well. And it is in dying to ourselves. And instead of instead of making apologies for uh, uh, things that happened 250 years ago or 500 years ago, which is, you know, which is fairly, um, it's kind of like very trendy, you know, that I could apologize for things I never did to people that I never met. Forget that for the moment. How about we just apologize for the things or ask for forgiveness for the things that we have done to the people that we have met? Perhaps people will say, well, wait a minute, I think we ought to give this a look. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. It's about he's a king. Apparently, he uh, has decided that his followers will live in a certain way by the enabling of the Spirit. These people over there are apparently trying it. Why don't we go check it out? You have in recent months been taking the Parkside congregation through Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 139 and Jude, which all point to how out of sync our culture is with God's God's word, God's expectations. It feels like the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 is pointing us back inward and saying, it's not just culture that is out of sync with God's demands, but our own lives are out of sync. And that's, again, why we need the gospel for forgiveness and for transformation. Yeah, that that's good, Pop. I wish I'd thought of that. I, I, uh, I, one of the salvations for me in in trying to tackle Jude and being tackled by Jude is the fact that he doesn't name anybody. He doesn't call anybody out. I mean, he gives us an identical picture of the characteristics of people that will that will cause trouble and and chaos if they're allowed to uh, embed themselves. So there is there is despite his very forceful approach. It's, if you like, a, a, an iron fist in a kid glove. And there is something in that, I think, that uh, we need to be prepared to identify what he's calling us to see, while at the same time recognizing that every finger that points out has a number that point back towards us. Mm-hmm. And the Sermon on the Plain, you know, we all know, we all know the thing about the uh, the the plank and the twig, you know, the, mm-hmm. but but we're horrible at finding twigs in people's eyes. There's a sort of humorous uh, treatment of that in the book, where uh, you know we have this idea that we have a a huge uh, beam that is 
projecting from our foreheads and we're trying to talk to somebody about something that they have in their eye and they say, you know, could you back up a little bit, please? And I say, well, why do I need to back up? I say, well, you got that huge thing sticking out of your head. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. They say, yeah, you do. And, and yet we're masters at that. And churches are horrible for that. Yeah. You know, self-righteousness, uh, self-pity, self, self. And that's why we need to bow down before the king. That's why he gives us the sermon. And, and I think it's not unimportant for us to be looking and saying, this is what is wrong in our world, and this is how the gospel would fix that. But if we neglect, this is what is wrong in my own heart, and this is what needs to be addressed there, then we, we drift into the self-righteousness that you're talking about. I want to ask you about the last chapter in the book, because after all of the challenging teaching of the Sermon on the Plain, you conclude the book by talking about the heart of the king. Why is that so important as we work our way through this material? Well, just in the same way that when we listen to somebody giving a talk, there is a person there. There is, there is a life there. There's a, that we, we hear these words and we, we respond to them not simply because we can understand the syntax, but because we sense something of the person, at least at, the, at best. And so when we read the words of Jesus, we need to realize that it is, these are Jesus' words. Uh, he is the, the Christ who has spoken clearly. He is the, the Christ who has compassion on people. He's the Christ who gives up himself in order others might find in him the, the longings of their hearts. And that's why we finish in the way that we do, so that we, we don't get the creed, as it were, distanced from the compassionate heart of Christ himself. I think every pastor who preaches, every author who writes a book like this, it comes away thinking, I hope my readers or my listeners will think differently as a result of their interaction with this, will we'll feel differently, and will act differently. As you think about this book and your prayer for this book, what do you hope will be different? How do you hope people will be different after they have read uh, this book and they've meditated on this sermon? You know, I hope that I will be different. The old song that we never sing, you know, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I mean, that that is foundationally the case. And so I hope that that would be multiplied. I hope that our church family, those who choose to uh, read this book, that we that it might have an impact among us because learning to say, I'm sorry, learning to say, please forgive me, learning to say, you know, I'm not at my best at the moment. Can you come alongside me? Learning to say, yes, I know that these people believe a very different agenda, that their lifestyle is orientated in another direction and learning to say, but I have no basis upon which I could argue that I would, myself would not be where they are, were it not for the amazing grace of God, were it not for his compassion towards me. And in very specific areas, this comes across. I mean, you and I know that we field questions all the time that go along the lines of, uh, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person, and I don't know what to do about this, and I'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do, mm. which is a huge responsibility. And in a conversation like that, just a few days ago, and uh, people may not like this answer, but I asked, the, I asked the grandmother, does your grandson understand 
your belief in Jesus? Yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance uh, in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well, then, okay, as long as he knows that, then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony mm-hmm. and I suggest that you buy them a gift. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, here's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared Mm -hmm. to countenance anything. And it is a fancy, it is a fine line, isn't it? It really is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and don't understand that he is a king. John tells us he was full of grace and truth, and we have to figure out how we can be full of grace and truth at the same time, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, Full of our words should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Yes. So easy to get that upside down. And when a pastor does, then that that will take on an, uh, a role in a congregation as well and flavor it. And so, you know, let not many of you become teachers. Well, of course, you've been listening to Alistair Begg in a conversation about Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, how it applies in our own lives, how we challenge our congregations with these biblical truths as we preach through passages of Scripture like Luke chapter 6, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, how we handle those passages pastorally in dealing with them. Alistair's new book called The Christian Manifesto takes a hard look at the Sermon on the Plain from Luke chapter 6. There's a link to the book in our show notes, so check those out. There's also a link to the Truth For Life ministry where you can find out more about Alistair and his sermons. If you're unfamiliar with him, his entire sermon library is available for free downloads or you can listen to it. There's a Truth For Life app. I was on a drive just recently and pulled up the website and had a chance to listen to a new sermon from Alistair as I often do when I travel. So check that out again, information available in the show notes about Alistair Begg's ministry. There's also information in the show notes about the Great Commission Collective. And if you are a pastor, or if you are interested in being a church planter, or if you're involved in church leadership, check out GCC. Find out more about the Great Commission Collective and the work we're doing to plant churches and strengthen leaders. Go to gccollective.org and find out about our distinctives and find out about what it is that we offer to churches who are a part of our collective. Again, gccollective.org is the website. Well, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk about how the women in your congregation can be actively, effectively, and increasingly involved in the ministry of your local church. We want to make sure that men and women both are being utilized effectively and fully in our local churches, and we talk next time with Carrie Fulmer about that. I hope you can join us on the next edition of The Bounce.